1823, Charter of 1373 extended the boundaries of the town to include Redcliffe thus settling the long-standing dispute and the waters of the Avon and Severn up to the steep and flat homes, and made Bristol a county in itself, independent of the county courts, with an elected sheriff, and a council of forty to be chosen by the mayor and sheriff. The town was divided into five wards, each represented by an alderman, the alderman alone being eligible for the mayoralty. This charter confirmed in 1377 and 1488 was followed by the period of Bristol's greatest prosperity, the heir of William K. Nyag, of the foundation of the Society of Merchant Venturers, and of the voyages of John and Sebastian Cabot. William K. Nyag 1399-1474 was five times mayor and twice represented Bristol in Parliament. He carried on a huge cloth trade with the Baltic and rebuilt St. Mary Redcliffe. At the same time cloth was exported by Bristol merchants to France, Spain and the Levant. The records of the Society of Merchant Venturers began in 1467, and the Society increased in influence so rapidly that in 1500 it directed all the foreign trade of the city and had a lease of the port dues. It was incorporated in 1552, and received other charters in 1638 and 1662. Henry VII granted Bristol a charter in 1499 confirmed in 1510 which removed the theoretically popular basis of the corporation by the provision that the aldermen were to be elected by the mayor and council. At the dissolution of the monasteries the Diocese of Bristol was founded, which included the counties of Bristol and Dorset. The voyages of discovery in which Bristol had played a conspicuous part led to a further trade development. In the 16th century Bristol traded with Spain, the Canaries and the Spanish colonies in America shared in the attempt to colonize Newfoundland, and began the trade in African slaves which flourished during the 17th century. Bristol took a great share in the Civil War and was three times besieged. Charles I.I. granted a formal charter of incorporation in 1664, the governing body being the mayor, 12 aldermen, 30 common councilmen, 2 sheriffs, 2 coroners, a town clerk, clerk of the peace and 39 minor officials the governing body itself filling up all vacancies in its number. In the 18th century the cloth trade declined owing to the competition of Ireland and to the general migration of manufacturers to the northern coal fields. But the prosperity of the city was maintained by the introduction of manufacturers of iron, brass, tin and copper, and by the flourishing West Indian trade, sugar being taken in exchange for African slaves. The hot wells became fashionable in the reign of and who granted a charter in 1710 and a little later Bristol was the center of the Methodist revival of Whitefield and Wesley. The city was small, densely populated and dirty, with dark, narrow streets, and the mob gained in an enviable notoriety for violence in the riots of 1708, 1753, 1767 and 1831. At the beginning of the 19th century it was obvious that the prosperity of Bristol was diminishing, comparatively if not actually, owing to a one the rise of Liverpool which had more natural facilities as a port than Bristol could offer, to the abolition of the slave trade, which ruined the West Indian sugar trade, and three the extortionate rates levied by the Bristol Dock Company, incorporated in 1803. These rates made competition with Liverpool and London impossible, while other tolls were levied by the merchant venturers and the corporation. The decline was checked by the efforts of the Bristol Chamber of Commerce founded in 1823 and by the Municipal Reform Act of 1835. The new corporation, consisting of 48 councillors and 16 aldermen who elected the mayor, being themselves chosen by the burgesses of each ward, 
bought the docks in 1848 and reduced the fees. In 1877-1880 the docks at the mouth of the river at Avon Mouth and Portis Head were made, and these were bought by the corporation in 1884. A revival of trade, rapid increase of population and enlargement of the boundaries of the city followed. The chief magistrate became a Lord Mayor in 1899. C.J. Corey, History of Bristol Bristol, 1816, J. Wallawadi, Antiquities 1834, J. Evans. Chronological History of Bristol 1824, Bristol Volume of Brit, Archeol, Inst, J.F. Nicole and J. Taylor, Bristol Past and Present Bristol and London, 1882, W. Hunt, Bristol, in, Historic Towns, Series London, 1887, J. Ratmer, Annals of Bristol Various Periods, G. E. Ware, Collectania Relating to the Bristol Friars Bristol, 1893, Samuel Southeastier. History of Bristol and Bristol Charters 1812, The Little Red Book of Bristol 1900, The Myers Calendar Camden Sock, 1872, Victoria County History, Gloucester, Bristol, Alberta of Bucks County, Pennsylvania, USA on the Delaware River, opposite Burlington, New Jersey, 20 meters and Yale Philadelphia, Pop, 1896-53, 1971-04-11-34-4-inborn, 1910-92-56. It is served by the Pennsylvania Railway. The bird was built on level ground elevated several feet above the river, and in the midst of an attractive farming country. The principal business houses are on Mill Street, while Radcliffe Street extends along the river. Among Bristol's manufacturing establishments are machine shops, rolling mills, a planing mill, yarn, hosiery and worsted mills, and factories for making carpets, wallpaper and patent leather. Bath Springs are located just outside the Burdo limits, though not so famous as they were early in the 18th century. These springs are still well known for the medicinal properties of their Calibiate waters. Bristol was one of the first places to be settled in Pennsylvania after William Penn received his charter for the province in 1681, and from its settlement until 1725 it was the seat of government of the county. It was laid out in 1697 and was incorporated as a Burdo in 1720 the present charter, however, dates only from 1851, Bristol, the Shire Township of Bristol County, Rhode Island, USA about 15 meters SSE of Providence, between Narragansett Bay on the W and Mount Hope Bay on the E thus being a peninsula, Pop, 1969-01, of whom 1923 were foreign-born, 1905, state census 7512, 1910-85-65, area 12 square meters. It is served by the New York, New Haven and Hartford, and the Rhode Island Suburban Railways, and is connected with the island of Rhode Island by ferry. Mount Hope 216 feet on the eastern side, commands delightful views of landscape, bay and river scenery. Elsewhere in the township the surface is gently undulating and generally well adapted to agriculture, especially to the growing of onions. A small island, Hog Island, is included in the township. The principal village, also known as Bristol, is a port of entry with a capacious and deep harbor, has manufactories of rubber and woolen goods, and is well known as a yacht-building center. Several defenders of the America's Cup, including the Columbia and the Reliance, having been built in the Harashoff Yards here, at the close of King Philip's War in 1676, Mount Hope Neck which had been the seat of the vanquished Sachem with most of what is now the township of Bristol, was awarded to Plymouth Colony, in 1680, 
immediately after Plymouth had conveyed the neck to a company of four. The village was laid out, the following year, in anticipation of future commercial importance. The township and the village were named Bristol, from the town in England. The township became the Shire Township in 1685, passed under the jurisdiction of Massachusetts in 1692, and in 1747 was annexed to Rhode Island. During the War of Independence the village was bombarded by the British on the 7th of October 1775, but B.04P.0582 suffered little damage. On the 25th of May 1778 it was visited and partially destroyed by a British force. Bristol, a city of Sullivan County, Tennessee, and Washington County, Virginia, USA 130 meters and E of Knoxville, Tennessee, at an altitude of about 1700 feet pop. 1880 30-09, 1890-60-26, 1998-50 including 1981 Negroes, 1910-13.395, of whom 71-48 were in Tennessee and 62-47 were in Virginia. Bristol is served by the Holston Valley, the Southern, the Virginia and Southwestern, and the Norfolk and Western Railways, and is a railway center of some importance. It is near the great mineral deposits of Virginia. Tennessee, West Virginia, Kentucky and North Carolina, an important distributing point for iron, coal and coke, and has tanneries and lumber mills, iron furnaces, tobacco factories, furniture factories and packing houses, it is the seat of Sullins College Methodist Episcopal, South, 1874 women, and of the Virginia Institute for Women Baptist, 1884, both in the state of Virginia, and of a normal college for Negroes. On the Tennessee side of the state line, the Tennessee-Virginia boundary line runs through the principal street, dividing the place into two separate corporations. The Virginia part, which before 1891 it was chartered as a city was known as Goodson, being administratively independent of the county in which it is situated. Bristol was settled about 1835, and the town of Bristol, Tennessee, was first incorporated in 1856. B.R.I.S.D.O.W. Benjamin Helm 1832-1896, American lawyer and politician, was born in Elkton, Kentucky, on the 20th of June 1832, the son of Francis Marion Bristow 1804-1864, a Whig member of Congress in 1854-1855 and 1859-1861, he graduated at Jefferson College, Canonsburg, Pennsylvania, in 1851, studied law under his father and was admitted to the Kentucky Bar in 1853. At the beginning of the Civil War he became Lieutenant Colonel of the 25th Kentucky Infantry, was severely wounded at Shiloh, helped to recruit the 8th Kentucky Cavalry, of which he was Lieutenant Colonel and later Colonel, and assisted at the capture of John H. Morgan in July 1863. In 1863-1865 he was State Senator, in 1865-1866 Assistant United States District Attorney and in 1866-1870 district attorney for the Louisville district, and in 1870-1872, after a few months' practice of law with John M. Harlan, was the first appointed solicitor general of the United States. In 1873 President Grant nominated him attorney general of the United States in case George H. Williams were confirmed as chief justice of the United States, a contingency which did not arise. As Secretary of the Treasury 1874-1876 he prosecuted with vigor the so-called Whiskey Ring, the headquarters of which was at St. Louis, and which, 
beginning in 1870 or 1871, had defrauded the federal government out of a large part of its rightful revenue from the distillation of whiskey. Distillers and revenue officers in St. Louis, Milwaukee, Cincinnati and other cities were implicated, and the illicit gains which in St. Louis alone probably amounted to more than 2.500.000 in the six years 1870-1876 were divided between the distillers and the revenue officers, who levied assessments on distillers ostensibly for a Republican campaign fund to be used in furthering Grant's re-election. Prominent among the ring's alleged accomplices at Washington was Orville E. Babcock, private secretary to President Grant whose personal friendship for Babcock led him to indiscreet interference in the prosecution. Through Bristow's efforts more than 200 men were indicted, a number of whom were convicted, but after some months' imprisonment were pardoned, largely owing to friction between himself and the president. Bristow resigned his portfolio in June 1876. As Secretary of the Treasury he advocated the resumption of specie payments and at least a partial retirement of greenbacks, and he was also an advocate of civil service reform. He was a prominent candidate for the Republican presidential nomination in 1876. After 1878 he practiced law in New York City, where he died on the 22nd of June 1896. See Memorial of Benjamin Helm Bristow, largely prepared by David Wilcox Cambridge, Mass. Privately printed, 1897, Whiskey Frauds, 44th Kong, 1st Sis, Mies, Doc No. 186, Secrets of the Great Whiskey Ring Chicago, 1880, by John McDonald, who for nearly six years had been Supervisor of Internal Revenue at St. Louis, a book by one concerned and to be considered in that light, B.R.I.S.D.O.W., Henry William 1817-1889, English Geologist, son of Major General H. Bristow, who served in the Peninsular War, was born on the 17th of May 1817. He was educated at King's College, London, under John Phillips, then Professor of Geology. In 1842 he was appointed Assistant Geologist on the Geological Survey, and in that service he remained for 46 years, becoming Director for England and Wales in 1872, and retiring in 1888. He was elected F.R.S. in 1862. He died in London on the 14th of June 1889. His publications C.G.O.L. Mag. 1889. Page 384 include a glossary of mineralogy 1861 and the geology of the Isle of Wight 1862. Britannia. Greek. Bretnia Kinesoi. Bretnia. Lat. Britannia. Rarely Britannia. The anglicized form of the classical name of England. Wales and Scotland sometimes extended to the British Isles as a whole Britannica insuli. The Greek and Roman forms are doubtless attempts to reproduce a Celtic original, the exact form of which is still matter of dispute. Brittany Ifar. Brittany in western France derived its name from Brittany due migrations in the 5th and 6th century AD. The personification of Britannia as a female figure may be traced back as far as the coins of Hadrian and Antoninus Pius early 2nd century AD. Its first appearance on modern coins is on the copper of Charles I. See numismatics. In what follows, the archaeological interest of early Britain is dealt with, in connection with the history of Britain in pre-Roman, Roman, and Anglo-Saxon days, this account being supplementary to the articles England, English history, Scotland, and C. Pre-Roman Britain geologists are not yet agreed when and by whom Britain was first peopled. Probably the island was invaded by a succession of races. The first, the Paleolithic men, 
may have died out or retired before successors arrived. During the Neolithic and Bronze Ages we can dimly trace further immigrations. Real knowledge begins with two Celtic invasions, that of the Goidals in the later part of the Bronze Age, and that of the Brythons and Belgae in the Iron Age. These invaders brought Celtic civilization and dialects. It is uncertain how far they were themselves Celtic in blood and how far they were numerous enough to absorb or obliterate the races which they found in Britain, but it is not unreasonable to think that they were no mere conquering caste, and that they were of the same race as the Celtic-speaking peoples of the Western continent. By the age of Julius Caesar all the inhabitants of Britain, except perhaps some tribes of the far north, were Celts in speech and customs. Politically they were divided into separate and generally warring tribes each under its own princes, they dwelt in hill forts with walls of earth or rude stone, or in villages of round huts sunk into the ground and resembling those found in parts of northern Gaul, or in subterranean chambered houses, or in hamlets of piled dwellings constructed among the marshes, but, at least in the south, market centers had sprung up, town life was beginning, houses of a better type were perhaps coming into use and the southern tribes employed a gold coinage and also a currency of iron bars or ingots, attested by Caesar and by surviving examples, which weigh roughly, some two-thirds of a pound, some two to three pounds but mostly one one three pounds. In religion, the chief feature was the priesthood of Druids, who here, as in Gaul, practiced magical arts and barbarous rites of human sacrifice, taught a secret lore, wielded great influence, but, at least as Druids, took ordinarily no part in politics. In art, these tribes possessed a native late Celtic fashion, descended from far-off Mediterranean antecedents and more directly connected with the Lotani culture of the continental Celts. Its characteristics were a flamboyant and fantastic treatment of plant and animal though not of human forms, a free use of the geometrical device called the returning spiral, and much skill in enameling. Its finest products were in bronze but the artistic impulse spread to humbler work in wood and pottery. The late Celtic age was one which genuinely delighted in beauty of form and detail. In this it resembled the Middle Ages rather than the Roman Empire or the present day. And it resembled B.04P.0583 them all the more in that its love of beauty, like theirs, was mixed with a feeling for the fantastic and the grotesque. The Roman conquest of Northern Gaul 5750 BC brought Britain into definite relation with the Mediterranean. It was already closely connected with Gaul, and when Roman civilization and its products invaded Gallia Belgica, they passed on easily to Britain. The British coinage now begins to bear Roman legends, and after Caesar's two raids 55-54 BC the southern tribes were regarded at Rome, though they do not seem to have regarded themselves as vassals. Actual conquest was, however, delayed. Augustus planned it. But both he and his successor Tiberius realized that the greater need was to consolidate the existing empire, and absorb the vast additions recently made to it by Pompey, Caesar and Augustus, Roman Britain I the Roman conquest. The conquest of Britain was undertaken by Claudius in AD 43. Two causes coincided to produce the step. On the one hand a forward policy then ruled at Rome, leading to annexations in various lands. On the other hand, a probably Philo-Roman prince. Cunobelin known to a literature as Cymbeline, had just been succeeded by two sons, Caractacus Cuvi and Togodomnus, who were hostile to Rome. Caligula, the half-insane predecessor of Claudius, had made in respect to this event some blunder which we know only through a sensational exaggeration, but which doubtless had to be made good, 
an immediate reason for action was the appeal of a fugitive British prince, presumably a Roman partisan and victim of Cunobelin's sons. So all his plowed teams with a singularly well-equipped army of some 40.000 men landed in camp and advanced on London. Here Claudius himself appeared the one reigning emperor of the first century who crossed the waves of ocean, and the army, crossing the Thames, moved forward through Essex and captured the native capital, Camelodunum, now Colchester. From the base of London and Colchester three corps continued the conquest, the left wing, the second legion under Vespasian, afterwards emperor, subdued the south, the center, the 14th and 20th legions, subdued the Midlands, while the right wing, the 9th legion, advanced through the eastern part of the island. The strategy was at first triumphant. The lowlands of Britain, with their partly Romanized and partly scanty population and their easy physical features, presented no obstacle. Within three or four years everything south of the Humber and east of the Severn had been either directly annexed or entrusted, as protectorates, to native client princes. A more difficult task remained. The wild hills and wilder tribes of Wales and Yorkshire offered far fiercer resistance. There followed thirty years of intermittent hill fighting A.D. 47-79. The precise steps of the conquest are not known. Legionary fortresses were established at Roxeter for a time only, Chester and Carleon, facing the Welsh hills, and at Lincoln in the northeast, Monmouthshire, and Flintshire with its lead mines, were early overrun, in 60 Switomis Paulinus reached Anglesia. The method of conquest was the establishment of small detached forts in strategic positions, each garrisoned by 500 or 1,000 men, and it was accompanied by a full share of those disasters which vigorous barbarians always inflict on civilized invaders. Progress was delayed too by the great revolt of Boadicea QV and a large part of the nominally conquered lowlands. Her rising was soon crushed, but the government was obviously afraid for a while to move its garrisons forward. Indeed. Other needs of the empire caused the withdrawal of the 14th Legion about 67, but the decade AD 70-80 was decisive. A series of three able generals commanded an army restored to its proper strength by the addition of Legioii, Adiotrix, and achieved the final subjugation of Wales and the first conquest of Yorkshire, where a legionary fortress at York was substituted for that at Lincoln, the third and best known, if not the ablest, of these generals, Julius Agricola moved on in AD 80 to the conquest of the farther north. He established between the Clyde and Forth the frontier meant to be permanent, guarded by a line of forts, two of which are still traceable at Camelon near Falkirk, and at Bar Hill. He then advanced into Caledonia and won a famous victory that moans Graupius sometimes, but incorrectly, spelt Grampies, probably near the confluence of the Tay and the Islot, where a Roman encampment of his date, Inchtutil has been partly examined C.G.A.L.G.A.C.U.S. He dreamt even of invading Ireland, and thought it an easy task. The home government judged otherwise, jealous possibly of a too brilliant general, certainly averse from costly and fruitless campaigns and needing the legioii, and Utrix for work elsewhere. It recalled both governor and legion, and gave up the more northerly of his nominal conquests. The most solid result of his campaigns is that his battlefield, misspelt Grampies, has provided to antiquaries, and through them to the world, the modern name of the Grampian Hills. What frontier was adopted after Agricola's departure, whether Tweed or Shavio or other, is unknown. For 30 years AD 85-115 the military history of Britain is a blank. When we recover knowledge we are in an altered world. 
about 115 or 120 the northern Britons rose in revolt and destroyed the 9th legion, posted at York, which would bear the brunt of any northern trouble. In 120 to the second reigning emperor who crossed the ocean, Hadrian, came himself to Britain, brought the 6th legion to replace the 9th, and introduced the frontier policy of his age, for over 70 meters from Tyne to Solway, more exactly from Walson to Downis, he built a continuous rampart, more probably of turf than of stone, with a ditch in front of it, a number of small forts along it, one or two outposts a few miles to the north of it, and some detached forts the best known is on the hill above Maryport guarding the Cumberland coast beyond its western end. The details of his work are imperfectly known, for though many remains survive, it is hard to separate those of Hadrian's date from others that are later, but that Hadrian built a wall here is proved alike by literature and by inscriptions. The meaning of the scheme is equally certain. It was to be, as it were, a Chinese wall, marking the definite limit of the Roman world. It was now declared, not by the secret resolutions of cabinets, but by the work of the spade marking the solid earth forever, that the era of conquest was ended. But empires move, though rulers bid them stand still, whether the land beyond Hadrian's wall became temptingly peaceful or remained in vexing disorder. Our authorities do not say. We know only that about 142 Hadrian's successor, and Ninus Pius, acting through his general Lollis Urbicus, advanced from the Tyne and Solway frontier to the narrower isthmus between Forth and Clyde, 36 meters across, which Agricola had fortified before him. Here he reared a continuous rampart with a ditch in front of it, fair-sized forts, probably a dozen in number, built either close behind it or actually abutting on it, and a connecting road running from end to end. An ancient writer states that the rampart was built of regularly laid sods the same method which had probably been employed by Hadrian and excavations in 1891-1893 had verified the statement. The work still survives visibly, though in varying preservation, except in the agricultural districts near its two ends, occasionally, as on Croyal near Kilsif, at Westerwood, and in the covers of Bonnyside three meters west of Falkirk. Wall and ditch and even road can be distinctly traced, and the sites of many of the forts are plain to practice ties. Three of these forts have been excavated. All three show the ordinary features of Roman Castella, though they differ more than one would expect in forts built at one time by one general. Bar Hill, the most completely explored, covers three acres nearly five times as much as the earlier fort of Agricola on the same site. It had ramparts of turf, barrack rooms of wood, and a headquarters building, storehouse and bath in stone. It stands a few yards back from the wall. Castle Carry covers nearly four acres. Its ramparts contain massive and well-dressed masonry, its interior buildings, though they agree in material, do not altogether agree in plan with those of Bar Hill, and its north face falls in line with the frontier wall. Rough Castle, near Falkirk, is very much smaller, it is remarkable for the astonishing V.04P.0584 strength of its turf-built and earthen ramparts and ravelins, and for a remarkable series of defensive pits, reminiscent of Caesar's Lilia at Asia plainly intended to break an enemy's charge, and either provided with stakes to impale the assailant or covered over with hurdles or the like to deceive him. Besides the dozen forts on the wall, one or two outposts may have been held at Ardoke and Abernethy along the natural route which runs by Stirling and Perth to the lowlands of the east coast. This frontier was reached from the south by two roads, one, known in medieval times as Deer Street and misnamed Wattling Street by modern antiquaries, 
ran from Corbridge on the Tyne past Otterburn, crossed Shavion near McKenna Camps, and passed by an important fort at Newstead near Melrose, and another at Inverie Scout side of Edinburgh, to the eastern end of the wall, the other, starting from Carlisle, ran to Behrens, a Roman fort near Eclifecken, and thence, by a line not yet explored and indeed not at all certain, to Carstairs and the west end of the wall, this wall was in addition to, and not instead of, the wall of Hadrian, both barriers were held together, and the district between them was regarded as a military area, outside the range of civilization, the work of Pius brought no long peace, sixteen years later disorder broke out in North Britain, apparently in the district between the Shavios and the Derbysiri Hills, and was repressed with difficulty after four or five years fighting, eighteen or twenty years later 180-185, a new war broke out with a different issue, the Romans lost everything beyond Shavio, and perhaps even more, the government of Commodus, feeble in itself and vexed by many troubles, could not repair the loss, and the civil wars which soon raged in Europe 193-197, gave the Caledonians further chance, it was not till 208 that Septime Severus, the ablest emperor of his age, could turn his attention to the island, he came thither in person, invaded Caledonia, commenced the reconstruction of the wall of Hadrian, rebuilding it from end to end in stone, and then in the fourth year of his operations died at York, amid much that is uncertain and even legendary about his work in Britain, this is plain, that he fixed on the line of Hadrian's wall as his substantive frontier, his successors, Caracal and Severus Alexander 211-235, accepted the position, and many inscriptions refer to building or rebuilding executed by them for the greater efficiency of the frontier defences. The conquest of Britain was at last over. The wall of Hadrian remained for nearly two hundred years more the northern limit of Roman power in the extreme west. I.I. The province of Britain and its military system. Geographically, Britain consists of two parts, one the comparatively flat lowlands of the south, east and midlands, suitable to agriculture and open to easy intercourse with the continent with the rest of the Roman Empire, to the district consisting of the hills of Devon and Cornwall, of Wales and of Northern England, regions lying more, and often very much more, than 600 feet above the sea, scarred with gorges and deep valleys, mountainous in character, difficult for armies to traverse, ill-fitted to the peaceful pursuits in agriculture, these two parts of the province differ also in their history, the lowlands, as we have seen, were conquered easily and quickly, the uplands were hardly subdued completely till the end of the second century. They differ, thirdly, in the character of their Roman occupation. The lowlands were the scene of civil life. Towns, villages and country houses were their prominent features. Troops were hardly seen in them save in some fortresses on the edge of the hills and in a chain of forts built in the fourth century to defend the southeast coast. The so-called Saxon shore, the uplands of Wales and the north presented another spectacle. Here civil life was almost wholly absent. No country town or country house has been found more than 20 meters north of York or west of Monmouthshire. The hills were one extensive military frontier, covered with forts and strategic roads connecting them, and devoid of town life, country houses, farms or peaceful civilized industry. This geographical division was not reproduced by Rome in any administrative partitions of the province. At first the whole was governed by one leg at his Augusti of consular standing. Septime Severus made it two provinces, superior and inferior, with a boundary which probably ran from Humber to Mersey. But we do not know how long this arrangement lasted. 
In the 5th century there were five provinces, Britannia Primancicana, Flavia and Maxima Caesarianses and for a while Valentia, ruled by presides and consulars under Avicardus. But the only thing known of them is that Britannia Prima included Sarenkister. The army which guarded or coerced the province consisted, from the time of Hadrian onwards, of one three legions, the second at Iscusilurum Carulianonusc, QV the ninth at Avericum QV, now York, the twentieth at Diva QV, now Chester, a total of some 15.000 heavy infantry, and to a large but uncertain number of auxiliaries, troops of the second grade. Organized in infantry cohorts or cavalry daily, each 500 or 1,000 strong, and posted in Castella nearer the frontiers than the legions. The legionary fortresses were large rectangular enclosures of 50 or 60 acres, surrounded by strong walls of which traces can still be seen in the lower courses of the north and east town walls of Chester, in the Abbey Gardens at York, and on the south side of Carleon. The auxiliary Castella were hardly a tenth of the size varying generally from three to six acres according to the size of the regiment and the need for stabling. Of these upwards of seventy are known in England and some twenty more in Scotland. Of the English examples a few have been carefully excavated, notably Bleager between Cardiff and Brecon, one of the most perfect specimens to be found anywhere in the Roman Empire of a Roman fort dating from the end of the first century A.D., Hardnot, on a Cumberland lure overhanging Upper Eskale, and Housiasteds on Hadria.